What's up, everybody? Welcome back to Keyboard Kimura. I am E. Spencer Kite, and these are the next day takeaways for UFC Charlotte, which took place yesterday, Saturday, May 13th, in Charlotte, North Carolina, Spectrum Center, headlined by heavyweights Jael Tanameda and Jarzinho Rosenstrike. And we're going to dive right in. So looking at the main event, which ended in the first round, rear naked choke submission, three minutes, 43 seconds in, Jael Tanameda, fifth straight victory, fifth straight finish since joining the UFC roster. He is, ladies and gentlemen, a heavyweight contender right now. Looking at Almeida and the way that fight played out, I think something that Daniel Cormier said after the broadcast, as they just sort of sat and discussed things himself, John Anik, Dominic Cruz, he said timing of Almeida's ascent, the timing of his arrival in the heavyweight division makes him a stylistic nightmare and a and an immediate threat right now. Those are thoughts that I I had in my column on Almeida for OSDB Sports on Friday. DC and I are of a similar mindset. Several years ago, when the division was dominated by guys like Kane Velasquez or quality grapplers like Fabricio Verdum, or even if you want to go back to Brock Lesnar being a great big wrestler type, those gentlemen would have presented a lot more challenges, a lot more problems for someone like Almeida that wants to go out and take people down and then either submit them or beat the holy hell out of them on the canvas. But if you look at the landscape today, if you look at the top 10 of which he will become a part of when the rankings update late Monday, early Tuesday, there's not really a lot of grapplers in that mix. Sergey Spivak, I would qualify as a grappler. Curtis Blades, I would list as a grappler. Tom Aspinall is a good grappler, but also is a striker. And that's about it. And when I look at the names that are in front of him right now after beating Jarzinho on Saturday, there's not many names in there. There's not many people in there that I'm not favoring Almeida over at this point. As DC said after the broadcast, if you put him in there with Cyril gone after what we saw from the Frenchman in March against John Jones, are you really turning around and favoring Cyril gone at this point? Or do you have to give the nod to Almeida, given that we saw him just lasso Jarzinho on Saturday and drag him to the canvas and then just dominate from there, control things, and eventually get to the point where, as I said in my recap of the fight with a little hat tip nod to Harry, presented Biggie Boy with the dilemma of, well, I'm here in Mount, you can either catch these hands... Or you can give me your back, at which point I'm going to choke choke you out. Biggie Boy rolled, gave up the back, got choked out relatively quickly. Here we are with, with Jalten Almeida as a top 10 fighter in five fights in just over 13 months on the active roster. Sorry, 15 months on the active roster and in five fights. I understand his call out of Tai Tuivasa. He mentioned it to me on Tuesday when I spoke to him for the story that I wrote for UFC.com this past week in advance of that fight. And I get it. It makes sense. And there is merit and good reason to taking aim at established, recognizable names who are strikers. Because he can do to Tai Tuivasa what he did to Biggie Boy on Saturday probably pretty easily. You got to watch out for the power. You certainly have to watch out for the bombs. But we saw on Saturday that even though Rosenstroik shut down the first sort of half-hearted takedown attempt, right? It wasn't really set up very well. He just kind of changed levels and pushed forward and, and Biggie Boy pushed him away. Almeida just resets and then shoots better and figures out in that instance of that one stuff takedown, what's the way for me to get to where I want to be? And he does it quickly and easily on the next takedown attempt. And so I get calling out Tai Tuivasa. I get probably next looking at somebody like Alexander Volkov or someone else in that, in that upper tier that is primarily a striker. But I'd really like to see him fight Curtis Blades, who is a wrestler and has, in theory, 
some grappling capabilities. We've we've seen Curtis Blades as an offensive grappler almost exclusively to this point, right? When he loses fights, it's because he gets knocked out, as he did last time out against Sergey Pavlovich, as he did against Derek Lewis, as he did twice against Francis Ngannou. I also wouldn't mind seeing Almeida versus Spivak, who has looked very good over his last bunch of fights. There will be people that suggest the winner of the recently announced Tom Aspinall Marchin Tybura fight. I think you keep Almeida and Aspinall away from each other for as long as you can. And you have these two emerging fresh names ascending in parallel lines for as long as you can so that we continue to get freshness at the top of the division alongside Sergey Pavlovich, especially if the gut feeling that everybody has that John Jones is going to face Stipe Miocic and then bow out comes to fruition. We will need as many fresh names at the top of that division as possible should that situation come to pass. And so you keep them apart, but there are some fights stylistically that I'm interested in because I do think Almeida can go through, go out and run through these strikers. Do the same thing to just about every one of them that he did to Biggie Boy on Saturday. He made it look easy. And when it looks that easy, it's not just a function of a lack of takedown defense and grappling abilities from Rosenstruck. That's a piece of it. But it's also that Melagino is insane on the ground and an absolute terror when he gets you there. Combined with the fact that he is, as he said to me, I'm, I'm more nimble than most heavyweights, which I think is a very polite, soft way of saying he's an explosive, dynamic athlete. And against a bunch of these guys that just aren't that, he's going to be able to excel. At the end of that OSDB piece this week, I said within 18 to 24 months, I think Almeida challenges for championship gold. After the fight on Saturday, in my recap on the, on the newsletter, in the about Saturday's action piece, I said I wanted to revise that already. And I think it's within 12 to 18 months. I would not be surprised to see this man fight for the UFC heavyweight title in 2024. And I wouldn't really be all that shocked, given what we've seen, if he wins the belt when he does. Before we get off the main event, I do want to touch on Jarzinho Rosenstrick, who suffers another loss to a guy that is better than him and going to ascend beyond him in the heavyweight division. That has become sort of his pattern. Beats the guys below him, loses to the guys ahead of him that are more dynamic fighters. And, and yes, I understand Almeida didn't come into this fight ahead of him, but you you understand the dynamics of we have an ascending talent and he's going to get past a guy like Rosenstruck. I think we have a tendency now to look at fighters like that and say they're invaluable. They, they are lacking value. Not that they're invaluable because I do think they do still have a great deal of value within these divisions, within these weight classes. He is to me a perfect gatekeeper in this division, we saw that in just, even if you just take his last two fights, right? The 23 second knockout of Chris, Chris Dawkins confirmed, solidified, finalized that Chris Dawkins isn't a guy that's going to be in the mix at heavyweight. Chris Dawkins is now moved down or attempting to in his on him on the way to moving down to light heavyweight where he fights in a month's time, I believe. But we also saw on Saturday that he's not quite and probably never will be a full-fledged bona fide contender. I think you need guys like that in every division. You need fighters of that creation in every division. I talk about it all the time, right? The people that are number six through 10 through 11 through 12 in every weight class, invariably a couple of them are guys like Rosenstrike. Our guys like Neil Magny, our fighters like Andrea Lee, who haven't gotten to that upper tier, haven't challenged for championship gold, but are the litmus test 
for all of these ascending names that maybe could get there. There's a reason why Ian Machado Gary called out Neil Magny, and we'll get to that in a little bit here. We used to have, I feel, my opinion, a greater appreciation for these types of fighters, for fighters like Rosenstrick, who we knew that they served a purpose. And even though they weren't contenders, we recognized the value in them serving their role. And it feels to me like we've lost sight of that a little bit. It feels to me that we've shifted further into the, if you're not a champion, what are you? If you're not an ascending prospect, what are you? If you're not an established fan favorite, what are you? And there's no utility to those people. I think it's the exact opposite. The piece of the argument to me where everyone seems up in arms all the time that the UFC releases veteran competitors or doesn't re-sign them or they fight out their contract and they let them go to other places is because we, is it, it speaks to exactly this. And yet it feels like we don't appreciate and value those people in the here and the now. And so maybe it's different because it's heavyweight and the heavier weight classes are, are a little bit different because there really is a big gap between that upper tier and then this gatekeeper status, middle of the pack ecosystem, middle of the top 15, I should say, not middle of the pack ecosystem kind of, kind of individual. Whereas lower down in the lighter weight classes, those fights are still a little more dynamic. They're still a little more competitive at times. There is that, that greater variance and everything is more tightly packed. But I do think it's still important and it still exists and needs to exist at heavyweight, at light heavyweight, at middleweight, because that is how we find out about guys like Almeida, right? That's the rub of this. Nobody was a hundred percent sure that he was a contender after beating Danilo Marquez, Parker Porter, Anton Turkali, and Shamil Abdurahimov, because none of those guys had gotten anywhere close to the top 10. Abdurahimov did at one point, I think, but it was fairly fraudulent and didn't last for very long. Rosenstreich had gotten there and is still there. And so we knew what this fight, this victory, this test meant. And if you don't value and recognize the people that serve those roles and appreciate the people that serve those roles then those tests become diminished in the future and don't carry as much weight and value when a guy like Almeida goes out and aces it the way that he did on Saturday. We'll get to the Ian Machado-Gary bit in a bit, and it's it's the same thing. The reason him going out and doing what he did to Daniel Rodriguez is a value and note and got the, the response that it got it's because we know how good D-Rod is. It's because we know how good Neil Magny is. And if he gets that fight, if that comes together, we'll understand that that's another step forward. We've got to maintain these steps. We have to keep these people in these spots so that the steps make sense. So that we're not skipping two stairs at once or three stairs at once and going from beating somebody where the wind doesn't tell us that you're a contender to all of a sudden you're facing somebody that's just outside of that title picture. We need the Rosen strikes of the world. I hope he continues to get opportunities. The one thing I will say outside of spots like this, the odd time on fight night shows, maybe just don't have him headline. It's okay. If he's in the co-main event or the third fight, on a fight card in a situation like this, if it's against just another sort of tenured heavyweight, it doesn't have to be the main event unless he's facing the next Jailton Almeida. Co-main event, Johnny Walker earned a unanimous decision win over Anthony Smith, 29-28, 30-27 twice. This for me was a fight where Johnny Walker looked good. He fought a measured, 
calculated fight. He didn't take too many risks. There wasn't too much of the Johnny Walker lunacy. He feels to me similar to Michel Pahea at this point, where he's dialed back the crazy, and all of a sudden, everybody just wants to see the crazy, even though eliminating it is a big part, or not even eliminating it, because it's still there. He threw a cartwheel kick in this. He threw a flying knee in this. He's still Johnny Walker. He can't get rid of all of it. But in reducing it, he's having his best results. He's getting those victories that he needs to get himself, again, when the rankings update, into the top five in the light heavyweight division. And that certainly doesn't mean as much as saying the top five at bantamweight or lightweight or welterweight, and we all understand that. But he's still a top five fighter, which means he's one to two wins away from potentially challenging for championship gold. And so whether it was dynamic and filled with highlight reel elements or not, it's a good win and it's important. And so to me, I certainly understand Dana White's criticism that he didn't go out and wow anybody. And I thought he could have stepped on the gas more. It was clear in the third round that Anthony Smith was there to be had. And I think Johnny Walker could have, could have gone out there and put it on Anthony Smith a little more and gotten a finish. And then we're not having any of the, well, he didn't wow anybody conversations. But at the end of the day, it's a good win against a former title challenger and a guy that has sort of steadied himself previous to this in that top five. The interesting piece to me going forward for Walker is who comes next. Because to me, there's two names that I would like to see or that make sense and are of interest to me. And they are Alexander Rakic, whenever he returns, or Magomed Ankalaev. Because it's crazy to me that we are now in May and Ankalaev fought for the title in December, fought to a draw in a fight that I thought he ended up winning and yet still doesn't have anything going on. Now, if there are contract situations and dynamics behind this that I don't know, that I'm certainly not privy to, fine, I get it, that makes sense. But one of those two men, who are the very few that are ahead of him in the rankings at this point, feel like the ones that make sense. Jan Bojovic is the other guy in that mix, alongside Yuri Prohashka, but we all seem to understand that Prohashka is going to fight. Jamal Hill at some point when he returns, so they're sort of off on their own. It feels like Bojovic has has teased a move to middleweight. We'll see if that's happening. And so give me Ankalaev, give me Rakic. A couple of months from now, four months from now sounds great to me. That fight can headline a fight night show, whether it's on the road or at the Apex, and I'm interested. But we have to talk about the Anthony Smith side of this as well. Because I thought... After Johnny Walker landed sort of the first big blow that he landed in the first round, Anthony Smith looked to me like a guy that wasn't sure why he was in there and wasn't 100% certain that he wanted to be in there any longer. Now, he is the guy that we all remember in his fight with Glover Teixeira that pushed back when media members said his corner should have threw in the towel. And so there was no part of me that thought on Saturday watching that fight that Anthony Smith is going to actively seek out an exit. He's not going to ask out of the fight in those terms. He's not going to look at Mark Montoya and say, throw in the towel. He's not going to look to the referee and say, I don't want to be in here. But there were points in that fight, especially in that third round, where you could see that if Johnny Walker just unloaded a little bit more, it would present Anthony Smith with that opportunity to just go out. He was ready to be had, and Johnny Walker sort of let him off the hook a little bit. Whether that's being, whether that's Johnny Walker not wanting to inflict damage on a guy that was already clearly hurt and looking for a way out, or Johnny Walker not recognizing it, or not wanting to take that risk. Whatever it is, it's fine. As I said, he got a good victory. End of the day, that's all that matters. That's what matters most to me. 
but I'm really curious to see where Anthony Smith is at and what he's going to be up to next because it seemed in the cage like he was maybe on the brink of hanging him up, took off the gloves. We see athletes do that all the time. Then he walked out of the cage and he sort of explained afterwards. I think we got a little bit of reports that, that he wanted to take some time and really think about his decision and think about what comes next rather than announce it spur of the moment in the octagon say, Hey, I'm done. And then feel in four months, six months, whatever it is that he still wants to hang around. Whatever he decides, I've really enjoyed watching Anthony Smith. I really have really enjoyed this sort of second run in the UFC, which started all the way back at middleweight with a couple upset wins that were really good. I really enjoyed the early breakout days at light heavyweight that led to his championship opportunity against John Jones. He's still been in some fun fights since. I wish him all the best. Whether he continues to fight or not, I think he has a bright future as an analyst and as a media personality. I'd like to see more of that going forward for him because he's a thoughtful, experienced, articulate guy and we need more of those in this space. But he looked like somebody that didn't want to be in there on Saturday. And to me, for me, that's a signal that it's probably time to move on to that next phase of things. Which brings me to Ian Machado Gary. First round TKO, head kick and punches, two minutes, 57 seconds over Daniel Rodriguez. And good gosh, was this a beautiful performance. This was a brilliant effort from an undefeated rising star in a moment where an effort like this just catapults you to a new level. I have been not critical and maybe not even harsh, but I have been reined in on Ian Gary during this run. And as I said in the week leading up, I talked about, you know, Song Kanan wasn't necessarily this big, great win we, I, I see value in some of the things that we got from that fight, but I was dire to see this fight with Daniel Rodriguez on Saturday. And Ian Gary showed out, just absolutely showed out. He set everything up exceptionally well. He imposed his terms on the fight. He did exactly what he said he was going to do right down to right high kick for the finish. This was his best effort yet but also clear signs to me that there really is something special to him and that he's going to be somebody that has the opportunity to keep elevating his game as he keeps climbing the ranks. I love the fact that he's looking to cross train and immerse himself elsewhere as they spoke about in the broadcast going to Brazil very shortly wants to go and train in New Zealand with Israel Adesanya and the team at City Kickboxing. I love that he wants to face literally everyone in front of him in the ranking so that there is no question about the merits of his championship opportunity when and if, if and when it comes. I get the Neil Magny call out. I do. It, it makes a whole lot of sense. He framed it properly. Neil Magny has long been that guy. Neil Magny just recently beat Daniel Rodriguez. So it makes sense. It is clearly another step forward. The greedy person in me wants to see something even, even bigger. The greedy person in me wants to see an even greater test. Stephen Wonderboy Thompson. Jeff Neal. Sean Brady obviously has a fight booked, but you know. We could get around to that one at some point. I'd be down with that. But I, I get the Neil Magny show. It makes a lot of sense. Couple other key things here for me with Gary, given this performance, given that he's 25, undefeated, perfect in the UFC, and coming off his biggest, most impressive performance to date. He needs to be headlining a fight night show in the next 12 months at the absolute latest. You could make an argument, you could make a case that the next one, given that it'll be against a top 10 opponent, 
could and probably should headline a fight night show. One of the smaller ones. We're not talking ESPN. We're not talking ABC. Though if you wanted to do it, we just saw in this main event with Almeida and Rosenstrike that it is a decision the UFC is willing to make. So maybe we get ESPN proper. Maybe we get an ABC show later in the year. Wouldn't be opposed to it. But at the very least, he needs to be headlining at some point inside the next year. Let's start getting him the five round wraps. I know he had some in Cage Warriors, but let's keep getting them to him because he looks really special. And guys like that, fighters like that, you got to take every opportunity you have to give them every shot to flourish and become stars because he has all the pieces. He has all the elements. And I would even argue that he can do away with some of the trash talking. I'm not Conor McGregor. I don't hear all these people that he can set all of that aside because he's a good looking kid with a decent story, can speak well, performs well in the cage, has a bit of style to him, has a bit of swagger to him. We don't need any of the other stuff. Those things in and of themselves will carry you to where you want to go, especially when you continue to turn in performances like this. Next up, we go back to the light heavyweight division. Carlos Alberg defeats Ihor Potieria. Two minutes and nine seconds. TKO due to strikes. Carlos Alberg just needs, he needs another step up in competition. He is ready for bigger tests. He is done fighting the Ihor Potieria types. Potieria types. I always screw up his name. I'm just going to keep calling him Potieria. This was now his fourth straight victory, his third straight first round finish, all against folks in this range. And so it's time to just go. Like he needs to face somebody that is going to present some real danger to him. And I don't just mean in the puncher's chance sense of things. Because to me, that's what Potieria presented here. Was, yeah, he's a little bit wild. He can crack a little bit, but... All things being equal, Carlos Alberg is the more technical guy. He's going to be able to do what he did on Saturday. Can I interest you in Dustin Jacoby? Can I interest you in Volkan Ozdemir? That sounds like a great big step up from where he's been, but he's also 32. And this is a division where, to me, there's not a lot of need or reason to progress him along slowly. We're starting to get some different names at the top. And if we can get everybody active and healthy and fighting, then fine. But let's just see. Because to me, you're better off testing the waters and finding out he's not yet ready for that depth of talent than continuing to bring him along at this incremental pace where next time out he's facing a Devin Clark or he's facing Alonzo Menefield or another sort of fighter from the oceanic region like Jimmy Crute or Tyson Pedro, somebody of that note. Let's just get him in there with somebody that has a number next to their name and find out where he stands. I wish that the only thing I had to talk about from the Carlos Alberg victory was Carlos Alberg's victory. But it's not. Because it was part of what to me feels like or felt like a continuing issue with some of these broadcasts. And in my show notes, which I am looking at here as I record this, I was going to save this to the end, but I want it, I want to address it here because I don't want to feel like I'm burying the lead and I'm, I'm staying away from it. So in this fight, Dominic Cruz and Daniel Cormier disagreed with the stoppage. Dominic Cruz used it as a moment, an opportunity to make it about himself and his lasting ongoing grudge and resentment for referee Keith Peterson, who was the third man in the ring, dating back to his fight with Henry Cejudo. And it took away from Carlos Alberg's moment. It took away from what we just saw and what should have been a, a spot for them to talk about the technical finish and the fundamental skills that Alberg brings to the table that make him 
a dark horse in this division. And instead they talked about the timing of the stoppage and Cruz talked about his disdain for Keith Peterson. And he veiled it a little bit or couched it a little bit. He didn't outright come out and say, this guy's terrible, but he, you know, the wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Yeah. These things happen with this referee and all of that stuff. And it, it honestly felt so amateurish to me because I'm sitting here watching it and this is on ABC. This is on the same network where I've watched Monday night football for years, where I've watched terrific boxing growing up, where I've watched so much college football with great announced teams over the years. And with the UFC A team in a main card fight where a guy picks up his fourth straight victory and a third straight first round stoppage win to put himself really on the radar with a beautiful check left hook finish. The thing we're talking about is them disagreeing with the stoppage because they want to see Ihor Potieria take more damage and Cruz going off about Keith Peterson. Now, this wasn't the only piece of Saturday's broadcast where I felt that the comms struggled. I didn't think Dominic Cruz was very good for the majority of the night. In the first fight, he spent the majority of it calling Jessica Rose Clark, Rose Clark as if her last name is Rose hyphen Clark, which it just is not. There was a reference earlier in the card to the beef with Keith Peterson when John Anik mentioned that Peterson and Dan Mergliata would be doing the majority of the fights the rest of the way. He had a little something to say there. And it feels to me like he's in a position now for whatever reason that he's just bitter about something. He just seems he was so good out of the gates and for so long that his regression or his sliding seems so noticeable. Whereas DC just feels like DC still. And I get that some people love him and I get that some people enjoy it. He's not my cup of tea. There's too many spots where he gets ahead of himself and can't remember names or gets on tangents that are about himself and guys that he's trained with or a reference to Gilroy, California. And I get that we all bring ourselves into these roles and I come on here and reference stuff that I've done, but it's all in connection to what's happening and what I'm talking about. And all too often, it feels to me like the action gets lost to have a Daniel Cormier, Dominic Cruz conversation about something that happened before that isn't necessarily tethered to what we're seeing in the octagon. Now, if that's because they feel the action doesn't really merit or need explaining fine, but I'd still rather you say this needs to be split up. This needs to be this, that I I would still prefer, prefer, excuse me, the focus to be on the action. Cause that's what you're here for is to call the action. And when we get individuals that can't leave their own stories or their own baggage outside of the cage and outside of the job, outside of that chair, it takes away from the fights. Paul Felder, I remember a couple of weeks ago with the Jared Gordon fight, when he got really worked up, in the moment Paul Felder recognized, I'm making this too much about me. I let my emotions and my relationship with Jared get the better of me in this spot, and I apologize. It is what makes Paul Felder terrific at this. I also, while we're on the subject of comms, don't really need Dean Thomas there because there it, it never feels like he's bringing anything different than what the analysts have already said. It's almost It's almost a redundancy, and so I would rather have either the analysts not talk at all about what the corner said and we bring in whoever is in that coach spot, quite often Dean Thomas, to talk about what is happening in those corners in between rounds. Then there's some functionality to it. Then there's some utility to it. 
But if whoever is in the analyst chair is going to talk about it and then we throw to Dean and it's just, I agree with that person. I don't need another voice agreeing with that person when I've already heard and seen the interaction in the corner and gotten the opinion of one, if not two analysts already. Bring me something that adds value. Bring me something that gives another element to this. I love and and would love to see, and I know Sean has talked about this, Sean Sheehan at Severa MMA has talked about this in the past. Give me a scoring analyst. Give me a judging analyst. Hell, give Sean that job in between rounds. Sean Sheehan, how did you score that round? Break it down so that Dominic Cruz isn't on there saying, well, they're, they're looking at damage now and, and damage is just the only thing they're looking at. Damn You're damn right. It is. It's the number one scoring criteria. He says it with disdain, but it's the number one scoring criteria. It could have been better. And to me, the fact that we had such stumbles on ABC is a thing that should really be addressed and really be worked on. Because these are the few moments where this sport and these athletes and this company go out to its largest possible audience in a showcase spot on network television. And it needed to be better. It needed to be better Saturday. And I hope it is the next time they get there. Let's get back to fights. Main card opener, Alex Morono gets a second round guillotine choke, two minutes, nine seconds in against Tim Means. And listen, these folks delivered exactly what I expected them to deliver. I'm not looking for high fives, pats on the back, anything like that. But this was as expected, as anticipated. Veterans that like to fight, know how to fight, and come to fight. And it's all that I ask for. It's it's all I want from a pairing like this. And largely from, from fights. Just giving people that want to be in there and entertain me. Tim Means did great work in round one, especially to the body. I think he had Alex Morono out of rhythm and out of sorts for much of that round. It was a great catch by Morono to get that guillotine. And you saw in the execution of that finish, the difference between someone like him that is a legitimate black belt that rolls every day and works on his grappling every day and people that know I grab a guillotine, but I don't know how to finish it. And I'm doing it out of either desperation or muscle memory or because I think it's what I'm supposed to do. As soon as he started to clamp onto that, he made every correct adjustment along the way to get that finish. He got over onto the correct hip. He adjusted his hands properly. He sat up into Tim Means to crunch that neck and that body down onto Tim Means, further cutting off that airway, further cutting off that blood supply. It was a beautiful finish. It was a great fight. And for me, like, this is, this is what I want. This is, I talked about this throughout the week. These are guys we need to celebrate. Alex Morono has more UFC wins than Lee Jingliang and Mike Chiesa. He has as many wins as Colby Covington and Steven Wonderboy Thompson. I get that all of those athletes I just mentioned are competing at a higher level than Alex Morono has. But like for the win and loss crowd, give the guy his due because he's posting wins. This is now five victories in six fights. He lives in that second 15 in the welterweight division. It's always entertaining. We have to, again, I said it with Rosenstroik, and it holds true to guys like this and fighters of this ilk. We have to appreciate them. We have to give them their due and not just treat fights like this as disposable and discardable. Because Alex Morono is going to be in there with somebody that's on the ascent next time out. And it means something to beat Alex Morono or not beat Alex Morono. And if we don't appreciate that going into fights like this, it's hard for me to understand how people then turn around and appreciate it when it happens in the next one. 
I just, all I ask for is consistency as best as we can. That's it. Prelims wrapped. Matt Brown, first round knockout win over Court McGee, four minutes, nine seconds, a right hand in the midst of an exchange. Power is the last thing to go, man. And Matt Brown is still, still walking around carrying a boomstick. His chin's still holding up. He's, he's in these spots. He's in these proper matchups right now against fellow veterans that he can keep going out and facing guys like Court, guys like Bam Bam, who he faced before this, where he's not put in too much danger and the weapons and the tools that he still totes around with him are going to be effective. He tied the record for the most UFC knockouts on Saturday with that finish of Court McGee. He will be back to break that record. When he does, it should be someone of this same set. I would say, as as just a matter of having a name, Muslim Salikov and Nicholas Dalby are set to fight here pretty soon. The winner of that one feels pretty reasonable to me. Both are older gentlemen in the in the welterweight division. They're outside of the top 15, but it is a fight that you can stick on the early part of a main card on a fight night show or the same spot as this one was to close out the prelims because it's going to be entertaining. There's likely to be a finish. And that's just where Matt Brown needs to be going forward. The other side of it. It was, it was difficult to see my friend get knocked out again. Um, I've texted with court already. He knows that I love him. I'm happy he's home safe. I just, it's, it's tough. It's, it's tough to see. And I think he is going to have a good long sit down and think about this. Um, he's not taking shots the way he used to. Right. Part of part of what made Court McGee dangerous and competitive was that he was indomitable. He just kept coming and he could take shots and just keep coming. But the physicality is gone. The reactions are all a little bit slower and he's not taking shots like he used to. And so, as always, I'm not going to tell anybody, even my friends, when they should hang up their gloves and move on to the next thing. But Court has a lot that he can offer this world outside of the octagon. And I would very much, I I would not be surprised if he decides to really focus on that full-time going forward. To that end, as I told him, It's time for me to get on these keys, finish working on this book that he and I have been working on for a long, long time. So everybody listening to this, feel free to get in my DMs every so often and just give me that nudge. Just write the words, get chapters done. I'm going to get them done. It's tough to see my guy get hurt. I'm glad he is home with his family and doing well. Good performance for Matt Brown. Tough night at the office for the crusher, but I'm glad he's home and feeling all right. Carl Williams gets a unanimous decision win over Chase Sherman, 30-27 twice, 29-28 on the other scorecard. I said going into the week that a victory over Chase Sherman wouldn't necessarily tell us a lot about Carl Williams, and I have to actually retract that. I have to revise that because that fight on Saturday, I think it did tell us a lot about Carl Williams, at least where he's at right now, which is that he's fine. He's fine. That's really all I can say. And unless there's going to be big gains in these next six, nine, 12, 18 months, This is about where he's going to reside going forward. Maybe a little bit further ahead. But is he going to be somebody that in 12 months time is in there beating Jarzinho? No. Is he somebody that is going to slot into that 
And here's a heavyweight fight on the main card of this fight night event rotation. Probably. He's probably going to fight Andre Arlovsky in the next year, since Andre Arlovsky continues to fight. He's probably going to face somebody like Waldo Cortez Acosta. Sorry, I always want to say Acosta Cortez, but it's the other way around. At some point, that's about where he fits right now. Is there room to grow? Absolutely. Is it going to come? I don't think so. That's my assessment from a guy that has watched a ton of fights and watched him not struggle with Chase Sherman, but certainly not go out and run through Chase Sherman. Additionally, I don't ever really like advocating for athletes being let go and no longer continuing to compete at the highest level where the money is the best, even though it's still not the best. But Chase Sherman is 4-11 in the UFC now, and that's got to be the last one. And I fully understand that stocking the shelves at heavyweight is difficult, but you can't keep rolling people out there that can't win fights. And he just can't. Like, that has to be a accepted fact now. If he could, he would have won this fight because it was there for him to win. He was doing some good things, but he just doesn't have the motor and the skill set to get it done, even against somebody as limited and inexperienced as Carl Williams. And so just trade out Williams for Sherman in that, why is this fight on the main card slot at heavyweight and move on with it? Move to the catchweight bout between Douglas Silva de Andrade and Cody Stamen, won by the Brazilian 29-28 across the board in a fight where Stamen seemed surprised that he lost. And we had some, some referee challenges. I think this was the fight where, where we had the, the Dominic Cruz. That's not much better about Keith Peterson. So first thing for me is that this was a close fight. So anyone acting like Cody Stamen was robbed needs to chill. I saw a lot of scores myself watching this fight and checking Twitter that had De Silva up two rounds going into the third. I don't think the third is a 10-8 for Cody Stamen. And so 29-28 for the Brazilian feels perfectly reasonable and acceptable and valid to me. Secondly, the standup was terrible. Like we're all in agreement. Like it's terrible and it alters the fight because Cody Stamen has Silva de Andrade on the ground. And then he gets kicked in the face. And for whatever reason, he's penalized for eating an up kick. Now, the up kick wasn't terrible. It didn't land with any kind of real force. And so Stamen's reaction kind of facilitated the interruption. That's not to say that the ref gets to handle it poorly. And he handled it poorly. According to the rules, according to the way you're supposed to do this, what should have happened is that he should have cautioned, he should have paused the action, call time, keep them right where they are, tell Silva to watch the upkicks, unless you're going to take a point, at which point you go, hey, one point, this guy right here, illegal kick, and then you restart them where they are. That's how that should have been handled. If you are going to stand them up because Cody Stamen needs time, you as that official need to know exactly where they are or as close to possible to where they are so that you can then reset them on the ground. Neither of those things happened. Cody Stamen worked hard to get Silva to the ground, got kicked in the face, and then had to stand up again and never got back in on a takedown, never got him back to the ground. That could have been the difference between that round being scored for Silva de Andrade and that round being scored for Stamen. What also sucks in this is that Stamen is part of the Extreme Couture crew, and we saw Eric Nixick on Saturday tweet out that this is the second time in a matter of like six or eight weeks that this has happened to a member of their team, as it happened with Rafael Asuncao 
a couple weeks back in his fight with Davy Grant. There's an illegal foul or there's a point taken for Davy Grant for grabbing onto the fence as Austin Sal finally gets him to the ground. They restart up on the feet and it ends the way it ends with Austin Sal getting clipped and triangled, inverted triangled at that. And so this is very much an experience thing, right? These officials, I don't know how much experience that particular official or the one in the Gian Kim Mandy Boom fight have in terms of overall number of fights they've been in. They certainly haven't had any experience or a great deal of experience in these big spots where it's bright lights and a full arena and ABC or UFC Fight Pass or ESPN Plus, whatever it is that these fights are being broadcast on. And they just cracked. They just made mistakes. And we're all human. Everyone is entitled and allowed and able to make mistakes. But it's tough when your mistakes cost people. It's tough when your mistakes directly impact how these fights play out. Especially when pay is tethered to results. I don't necessarily expect these commissions to just throw their people aside whenever a big show comes to town and exclusively use established names. I don't, I don't think they're going to fly in four different officials that have loads of experience at this level and just leave their guys on the sideline. But it's got to be one or two fights at the max, and maybe it's just one guy. Maybe it's just one person. So we're coming out here, the UFC is coming out here to Vancouver. In a month's time, we will be at Rogers Arena for UFC 289. There will be local officials on that card. My guy, Kevin Dornan, will referee on that card. Kevin is experienced. He has done some UFC events every time the company has come to town. He has been there. He does a ton of work with, with Battlefield. He is a great official. But he shouldn't get four fights out of the 13. And that's not me wanting to take opportunity away from Kevin, who I'm friends with, who I like. And he, and he more so than these guys can probably do more because he's had more opportunities here. He's been a part of every UFC event that has come through Vancouver. But you're not going to see Kevin and several other local guys all get two fights. You're going to see Kevin and maybe one other. I don't know if my guy John Cooper is still reffing. Maybe Coop gets a shot. Maybe the young fellow that does a bunch of battlefield, Mitch, I can't remember his last name, gets a shot, gets an opportunity, but it's going to be a select number. And I know that it was only two on Saturday of the local guys, Larry Carter and the gentleman of this fight, whose last name I believe was Spinelli or Spinoli. They just fumbled the ball, man. They just dropped the ball and it's just an experience thing. And it sucks when it happens and you feel bad and everybody that just piles on them needs to take a step back and remember what they were like the first time they stepped into the spotlight and that these things like mistakes happen. We're all human, but it just sucks. As I said, when these mistakes and these, these poor decisions are tethered to financial gain or loss for these athletes, I don't care about how much time it takes to get through things and when they're doing things out of order, as we'll talk about here briefly in the Mandy Boom, Gian Kim fight. It just sucks to see people make mistakes. And and listen, good referees, established referees make mistakes all the time. So we need to cut these folks some slack. But at the same time, these commissions need to really evaluate their own people and not just give them shots because, hey, this is one of our guys and and we're going to use our own guys. Which brings us to that Mandy Boom, Gian Kim fight. Technical split decision win for Mandy Boom. Uh, 28-27 twice, and then 28-27 the other way for the technical split decision. So this was a fight where Gian Kim seemed to actively be trying to give away the fight. Not in a like she's throwing the fight sense, 
but in the sense that she fought with emotion and recklessness because she was frustrated. So she lost a point at the end of the second round for kicking Mandy Boom when she wouldn't get out of her guard, wouldn't get off of her at the end of the round. She then lost a point for the inadvertent knee that ends up halting the action, which is always one of those weird ones. Like if it's worthy of a point deduction, isn't it then worthy of a disqualification? And if it's going to stop the fight, it's a weird situation to navigate. I don't really want to get all into the weeds of the mechanics of this particular fight. The one thing I do want to say about the point deductions, because there were some people that seemed to take umbrage with this referee, Larry Carter, taking these points, is that it seems to be a lot of the same folks that want points for fence grabs and kicks to the balls and eye pokes and things like that. And again, cool, but let's be consistent. Do we want point deductions for all fouls or do we want to let Johnny Walker get two thirds of the way to a Gordie Howe hat trick by kicking Anthony Smith in the balls and poking him in the eye and just forgetting to grab the fence. He didn't get any points taken. Nobody seemed to bat an eye about that. But then when Gian Kim does actually foul Mandy boom a couple of times and gets points taken, people seem upset. Maybe it was the timing because Larry Carter seemed to do it at odd times in odd moments. Fine. Whatever. But let's figure out when we want point deductions and when we don't and what merits them and what doesn't because we need to just sort that out. My main takeaway from this fight, and I talked to my former partner in crime, Harry Powell, about this a little bit as I was putting this together this morning, is that the talent gaps in the women's division are quite sizable. So what I mean is, Mandy Boom and Gian Kim can go out and have a competitive fight with one another as they had on Saturday. And they have been competitive in fights with opponents at this level each of their last several fights. But when they get in there with somebody not of this level, somebody a a step above, a rung or two above, it's not competitive at all. And the good fighters are far and away better than the middling set and the great fighters are two steps ahead of the good fighters. And then the elite fighters are another step ahead of the great fighters. If that makes sense. I don't think we have as much or as sizable a gap in ranges and in tiers within these divisions on the men's side of things. And it's understandable guys have had a lot longer to be doing this at this level, access to all the things that just took way too long for women to get access to and opportunities to their play and catch up. And a lot of them have caught up fairly quickly. But when we get to different spots like this, you see the talent gap. You see that Gian Kim or Mandy Boom aren't going to put together the kind of development and run and skills to even beat someone in the middle of the pack in the flyweight division, yet alone go out there and be a real test for someone like an Italia Silva who fights this coming week or Miranda Maverick or one of these other young fighters that's ascending or even some of the veteran fighters, as I mentioned, Andrea Lee earlier in the show, somebody in that, that grouping that is established, that is ton of experience and a little more dynamic and athletic and all of those things. You see the disparity between the sets, between the tiers right now, to me, a lot more on the women's side of things. And I really look forward to seeing that shrink and seeing that reduce because that's when things get extra exciting and really intriguing. E. Spencer Kite, Keyboard Kimura, the next day takeaways for UFC Charlotte. Couple more fights to go. Brian Battle knocks out Gabriel Green in 14 seconds, then hits a little Ric Flair strut and a woo in the center of the octagon in Charlotte, North Carolina, 
where Ric Flair reigned supreme for a long, long time. And I'm not going to lie. I let out a woo in my den because hell yeah, Brian Battle. You hit a little Ric Flair step out and woo in the center of the cage in Charlotte, North Carolina, where you are from as well. And the building is going crazy. You have my respect, sir. This was a ridiculous 14 seconds. I have no idea what Gabriel Green's mindset was coming into this. I have no idea what he was thinking going into this. Brian Battle found the shot to put him down, and it was a good shot. But let's be clear that this was two dudes up against the fence swinging for the fences, and Brian Battle just happened to land. This wasn't precision. This wasn't Israel Adesonia baiting Alex Pahea in. This was, ah, I'm stuck on the fence and this dude's swinging at me. I better throw back and fight my way out of here. And he found his chin and put him down. The thing that was interesting to me about this, and I only heard about this after the event, kind of scanning through Twitter later in the day, Brian Battle originally wasn't going to get a bonus or didn't get a bonus. I guess it got added after the fact when some media pointed out like, hey man, the local guy knocked somebody out in 14 seconds to set this place buzzing. I think he probably deserves 50K. Now, if you watch enough UFC events and you pay attention to things like the bonuses and Dana White speaking after events in the media that tweets those things out, performance of the night bonuses and fight of the night bonuses tend to be given to main card performances more often than not. And that's always been weird to me. Like it should just, I mean, you can, we can have a whole conversation in another podcast down the ra- down the road about everybody that gets a finish should get a bonus about deciding who gets these things, how those things are decided. I don't want to go back to fan votes because those are dumb. But like the fact that Brian Battle was maybe not going home with some extra bread in his pocket wouldn't have been a good look. That's all I'll say. It just wouldn't have been a good look. Guy goes out and starches somebody in 14 seconds at home, gets the crowd hype going into the rest of the event. To quote Teddy KGB, pay that man his money. As for Battle himself, he is somebody that I will continue to watch. He's got some personality. I appreciate that. I I have thought that he has some some good fundamentals and some good foundational things to build upon since his time on season 29 of The Ultimate Fighter as a member of Team Volkanovski. We'll see if that carries over. I still want to see the wrestling question answered, but we're going to have to wait till the next time out. Because you don't need to you don't need to wrestle and you don't need to show off your takedown defense when you knock somebody out in 14 seconds. Opening bout of the night, Tainara Lisboa, third round submission win, rear naked choke over Jessica Rose Clark, four minutes, 20 seconds, 40 seconds left on the clock in her debut. A very good performance overall from, from Lisboa. She looked sharp striking. There was some good work on the ground, even when she was on her back, even when she was on bottom. I appreciated that. I appreciated the work that she showed from top. And this was a good little finish out of the scramble, right? They're working their way back to their feet. She sees the opportunity, catches the neck. It's a wrap. We're done. I'm very curious to see how she progresses, um, what she does with a step up in competition. As I said, coming in, she's 32 years old. Maybe we don't go the real slow route. I liked this matchup against Jessica Rose Clark because she's somebody that has a little bit more experience, that has some UFC wins. I think this is one of those victories, unfortunately, that isn't going to age well just because I think with this being a third straight submission loss for Jesse Jess, it's hard to argue that she can hang at this at this level anymore. Now, maybe she gets another shot because she does have a good fan following. She is a well-liked professional, but it feels like something's missing. It feels like she's regressed over these last several fights. And I I haven't had to deal with the injuries she's had to deal with. She has been sort of itinerant in 
her training setups and systems and where she's been. I know she was in Texas for this one. They said on the broadcast, she had been out in California for a while. She had been in Vegas for a piece. I don't know if all of that is, has factored into it, but whatever it is, she's struggling right now performance wise. And unfortunately for Tynara Lisboa, you become the third person to defeat Jessica Rose Clark by submission. It doesn't look as good when you're the first person. That was Stephanie Egger. Or even the second person in, in Yulia Stolyarenko. And so I would like to see Lisboa get another fight against someone else of this caliber. Someone else of Jessica Rose Clark's level. Just to get another read on her. Because she looked good. And she did all of this without her chief corner. Without her head coach. In her corner this week. So if we can get that sorted. And she keeps gaining experience. This could be somebody that's just a little bit intriguing in the bantamweight division, right? I'm not going overboard here and saying she's a contender, but this division needs new names and Saturday's opener at least introduced us to one to keep an eye on in the Thai Panther, Tainara Lisboa. That's it for the show. We have got a UFC event coming up this weekend, headlined by Mackenzie Dern and Angela Hill. So I will be back throughout the week with the usual suspects. One question on Wednesday, 10 things on Thursday, the double dip of the punch drunk predictions and the betting show on Friday, and we'll get after it. I will be back tomorrow with another installment of the Keyboard Kimura podcast. Not sure what I'm going to be talking about yet. You'll have to tune in to find out. I thank you all for tuning in here all week since I've been back the whole way along. means the world to me. I appreciate you all. I thank you all. I hope you know that you have value, you have meaning. You are loved, and we'll talk to you soon.